The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I hope you have had a good morning. Um, Listen, I believe this with everything, that this is the day that the Lord has ordained and made and that you are not here for chance or accident. Um, I believe that God has a purpose for us this morning, and I'm excited. We have a lot of warning, a lot of ground to cover, important ground to cover, and we are going to be in Romans 2. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you turn with me to the book of Romans What we're going to see is that this text is going to bring out some things, some uh, some important things, some important questions that we're going to examine. But before we get into this, like I said, we have a lot of ground to cover. So here's what I'd like to do. I want us to start on the the ground level and kind of set a foundation for us as we work through this this text. Um, I want to start with the truth of our salvation. The Bible teaches... The Bible teaches that there is one way, only one way, to get to heaven. Amen? Do you believe that? As we've seen already in this letter, in in Romans, throughout all of chapter 1, God is perfect, He is holy, He is just, and His wrath is going to be poured out on all sin, all of it, not most of it, not some of it, not just those guys' sin, but all sin because he is perfect and holy and just and good. And because this is true, there is only one way to heaven, and that is absolute perfection. Absolute, sinless and righteous perfection. In other words, only those who are able to stand before God in perfection. Absolute. So as I'm saying this, everyone here who is perfect, that's really good news. Um, for anyone here who has never sinned, never acted evil, thought evil, but are perfect in all of your many ways, that might be good news, right? But as the Bible tells us repeatedly, and if we're just honest, as you tell you repeatedly, that's not happening. That is not happening. You are not perfect. No one has ever met the standard, not, no, not one. Um, I read this week that uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul, uh, theologian, teacher, pastor, would often try to stump his students. And he would ask them, how many ways are there to get to heaven? And without exception, good seminary students would say there is one way, one way to get to heaven, uh, by, by faith in Christ. And that is absolutely true. Realistically speaking, absolutely true. But theoretically speaking, there's another way. It's by leading an absolutely perfect life, a perfect life. And then he would go on to say, if a person were perfect and lived a perfect life of obedience and kept the law of God perfectly, you wouldn't need the atoning work of Jesus. But then Sproul would remind his students that Jesus came to save those who did not live perfect lives, those who could not live perfect lives. And then he would make the point even more to point out the great tragedy that it is that there are actually people who believe that they are good enough, that they are 
good enough to get to heaven. Only those who are perfect will be able to spend an eternity with a perfect God, and that's why the gospel is so good, because Jesus, in his absolute perfection, came and lived the perfect life you could not live. He died a gruesome death that you deserved and rose from the grave to give you a resurrection that you do not deserve. That's the gospel. We absolutely believe and hold to, don't shoot me when I say this, we absolutely believe and hold to a gospel of work. It's just not yours. It's the work of Jesus Christ that was completed fully. Fully and completely. Those who believe in Christ, Scripture says, are saved and justified. And here's what this means. And one more thing before we, one more groundwork. The gospel is all about an exchange that happened. An exchange that happened where you gave Christ your sin. And he took it willingly, took it all, the full weight, wrath of God for your sin. He bore the wrath of God that was deserved for you. He took it all. But that was just half of the exchange. Just half of the exchange. And the other half is equally glorious. Because as he took your sin, Scripture says Jesus gave you his perfection and righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become, here's part two, the righteousness of God in him. That means that when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. Just take that in. I don't care what you, what you have done. I don't care how deep and how dark your sin, Christ took all of that. In him, Christ took all of that, and he gave you, not only did he take it, but he gave you his righteousness and perfection. This is justification. This is salvation. For all of us who are in Christ, you are justified. You are saved by grace through faith alone. You have been made perfect in the eyes of your Father, and you are being perfected through his, through his power for his glory and that's how, by the way, we can say there is therefore now no condemnation. That's how we can say we are no longer slaves to sin. That's how we can say we are new creations. That's how we can say that the old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's how we can say these. These are not fluffy theological words. It's your identity. It's who you are in, in Christ. And church, we have to begin here. We have to begin here. It's my prayer as your pastor, it's our prayer as elders, that you know who you are in Christ. The enemy would want nothing more than for you to either think that your sin is too great for Jesus or to think that you're too great to need him. Last week we ended with a quote, and this is the final thing I'll say when we, in laying this foundation. We ended with this quote from a book that says, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Cheer up, the gospel is far greater than you can imagine. So with that foundation, there's something else for us that this text is going to pull us to. And there are some questions here that we need to ask. What do works mean then? What do works mean for us? Are they important? Church, why are they important? Since everything that we've said is true, why are works important? As Christians, we, um, we easily understand, yes, of course, God, is, he's going to judge those heathens who reject Jesus. 
They're going to stand before him. Judgment, rain down. They're going to be judged according to their works. But I need to ask you, church, what does the Bible say as Christians about the role of works for us? Do they matter? Why do they matter? These are really important questions. And my hope, I'm just going to get it all on the table. My hope this morning is that we together are able to have and gain a biblical perspective, a biblical understanding of works. So as we turn to our our text, I want you to hear me. Scripture tells you loudly and clearly. Romans tells you loudly and clearly that you are not saved or justified by your own works, but in grace alone and through faith alone and Christ alone. But as we're going to see, this does not mean that your faith is unrelated to your life. This does not mean that, that your faith in Christ does not impact your real life. Not just the Sunday version of you, but the real life. This does not mean that your faith is some abstract thing up there in the clouds. In fact, it's the opposite. True faith has works. James says, faith without works is dead. James, I love this. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you my faith through my works. It's not a salvation by works. It's a salvation that works. What we're about to read is so important for us to see. Um, so important. So let's pick up. Let's pick up in verse 6. And I want to read this thing straight through. Then we're going to walk through. So Romans 2, starting in verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay. A few observations here. Um, First, notice Paul divides this audience into two people. We have on this side, we have those that the text says who by patience and well-doing, right, uh, seek for glory and honor and immortality. We have those, and to this group, by the way, he says he's going to give eternal life. To this group, he says, there is honor and glory and peace for everyone who does good. That's this group. But there's another group, and he says over here, there's another group who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And for this group, Paul says, there is going to be wrath and fury, and there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Two groups. Paul is very clear that both of these groups are going to stand before the Lord and give an account for their lives and for their deeds. So here's the first observation I would like for us to make together. Every person will stand before the Lord to give an account for your life. Every person will stand before the Lord to give an account for your life. 
God is the righteous judge over all. That includes me, that includes you. And one day, church, you will stand before the Lord, the righteous judge, and you will give an account. The reason I say this is because for those in Christ, Scripture does not teach that Jesus is your ticket out. Jesus does not, or the Scripture does not teach that Jesus is like the get out of jail free card. Instead, Jesus is the means by which we are able to stand before our righteous judge in a humble confidence that's not in ourselves or our goodness, but in Christ's work, in the Spirit's work in our hearts. But listen, this may sound controversial, but in Christ you are actually and literally made new. You are made new creatures, new creations. The Spirit is actually at work in you. We are being sanctified now, we are not perfect, not, not until that day when we are before him, but as the text says, and I love this, there is patience and well-doing. This is the mark of a child of God. See, faith impacts our life. Our faith works. Faith without works is dead. Because as a child of God, your works declare the reality that you are, in fact, a child of God. Our works are the outcome of our faith, of the Spirit's working. Um, one of the most influential pastors of, in my opinion, all time, uh, was Charles Spurgeon. And I love the way he helps us to think about this truth. So he compares, he compares it to an apple tree. I'm going to read this because he's brilliant, and I don't want to paraphrase. He says, a tree has been planted into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether it has apples on it or not. See, the apples, they would not give it life. But the whole of the life of the tree, it comes from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when springtime comes and there is no bud and when summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say that that tree is dead. And you are correct, as Spurgeon says, it is dead. And then he says this, it is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. Spurgeon goes on to say, so too is it with the professor of the faith. If he has life, that life must give fruits, if not fruits works. If his faith has a root, but there be no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that he is spiritually dead. Here's the reality. Your faith, or your works, do not make you alive. I'm going to carry on Spurgeon's analogy here. It would be as crazy as you taking a stapler, some tape, and an apple, and going up to a dead tree, and taping it and stapling an apple to a dead tree. Does that make that tree alive? No, it's a dead branch with an apple stapled to it. 
Stapling fruit to a dead tree does not make it alive, just like trying to do a bunch of really good things does not make you alive. Only Christ can do that. But at the same time, an ongoing and continual absence of any fruit, of any works, of any obedience is a proof or an evidence of your spiritual condition. It is a heavy thing for me as a pastor to say. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but that faith is not dead. That faith works out. But as we continue to look at this text, there's one other quick observation I want to make, and and that is that we see here that the Lord, the righteous judge, he does not show favoritism or partiality. We see that three times. In other words, every person will stand before the Lord, and on that day there will be no status or, uh, or privileged position or birth or family tree or special in that exempts us here in our text. Paul is specifically looking at the Jew and Gentiles, the Jewish community in the ancient church of Rome, who were believing that just because they were Jewish that they are somehow okay or more okay than that guy. And Paul says, no. Just as they are going to stand before the Lord, so will you. The message is true for us as well. Just as they are going to stand before the Lord, so will you. So will I. And the Lord Jesus will return one day. He will judge, and you and I are going to stand before our Savior and give an account. Now, I want to speak to something here really important. Um, For you who are in Christ... And we think about that day, we don't look at that day with anxiety. We don't look to that day wondering if we will receive wrath or love. We don't look to that day wondering which is it going to be. We don't look to that day with fear or anxiety. For you who are in Christ, through Christ, we can come to our God in confidence knowing that we are His, knowing that we are forgiven and justified. And I want to remind you something that is so important. I've said it over and over already that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. I'll say it like this. It is the power of God that saves you. Now, I want to build on this because I need you to hear me. Not only is it the power of God that saves you, it's the power of God that keeps you. This is this is, this is big. There's nothing that separates you in Christ. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. It, the power of God saves you. The power of God will keep you. The enemy wants you to believe, would want nothing more than for you to believe that although you might be saved by grace, that you are somehow kept by your works. No. That was a pretty good buzzer noise that I just made there. The enemy would want you to live in that fear. But church, you are neither saved or kept by your works. Here's, what, here's the reality. Your works proclaim the reality that Christ has saved you and that Christ is keeping you. Here's what we've seen so far. One, every person is going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And two, our God shows no partiality as we stand before him. 
For the wicked, there will be judgment. For the righteous, there will be judgment. And because this is true, I want us to come full circle back to our question. Christians, what role do works have for us? Why do they matter? Do they matter? I'd like for us to see a couple things as we, kind of, as we try to think of this biblically. The first is this. Our works are indicators of our spiritual health and vitality. Our works are indicators of our health, spiritual health and vitality. Think about a blood pressure monitor. Now, um, or a scale or thermometer, whatever you want. I'll, I'll stick with blood pressure monitor. When you take your blood pressure, it's going to give you a reading. It's going to give you two numbers. And seeing the numbers on the screen does not make you healthy or not. It indicates your health. It indicates your health. Stepping on a scale, reading the scale, does not make you healthy or unhealthy. It does indicate health or non-health. These are indicators. Indicators. So let's get real here. As you examine your life, as you examine your indicators, what do you see? If you were to examine your life this morning, and here in this moment the Lord is bringing up to you, and I believe He will do this, fruit that you start to think, I am not who I once was, and you start to see the fruit. And if that's you, as you examine yourself, this is a moment where you just, this is an excuse for you to praise God because you see his work in you. This is a moment where you're able to just rest and abide in the fact that Christ is in you and that you are in Christ. And at the same time, though, if you are here, and as you examine your life, if you're honest, you see nothing. You see nothing. You see no fruit. You are faced with really only two paths. The first one is that you could see your life and see the disobedience and see the lack of fruit, and you could sit here, think about it, know it, and care little. And it just not bother you. You just continue in your life and your sin and disobedience. Okay, this is going to be heavy. And I, I, I have to say this, though, as your pastor. Um, listen, I am not charged with the responsibility to determine who is saved and who is not saved. Praise the Lord for that. Not my role, not my responsibility. Jesus says only the Father. That is not my role. That is God and God alone. Although the, I am not charged with that responsibility, here's what I need to say. According to Scripture, I can offer you no biblical assurance that you are His. In fact, if I were to stand up here and say, considering that you have no fruit and that that lack of fruit bothers you nothing. You're just going to keep walking. You don't care. And you're just going to keep walking. If that is you and if you were honest with that, if I were to stand up here and offer you some assurance that you're going to be okay, it's all good. 
I would be offering you an assurance that Scripture does not offer. And as a pastor, I might really want to do that, but that assurance doesn't mean anything. It would be like, going back to our analogy, it would be like if you took your blood pressure and you come and show me the screen and it says like 180 over 120. I can't look at that and go, oh, you're good. (laughs) I can't do that. That's not a faithful shepherd. That's not being faithful to his word. On the other hand, though, if you're here and you examine your life and you say, I just... I don't see fruit. And here in this moment, there is a brokenness over your sin and you are drawn to repent. You are drawn to walk in obedience. Church, even in this moment, as you feel that conviction, that is an glorious evidence and proof of God at work in your life. That is a glorious working of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of your life this morning might just be repentance. And in that, if that is you this morning, (laughs) I can stand firmly on the Word of God and offer you an unwavering assurance. Because For those who believe and repent, Scripture is very clear. You can know that you know that you know that you can know that you are His. Your works don't save you. They are indicators. So let us examine our lives and let us come to our God in confession and repentance. Our works are indicators. The second thing that I think we need to wrap our minds around is that our works are byproducts of God's working in our life. They're indicators, but they're also the byproduct of God working in our life. And and this morning, I want to preach boldly against two heresies, two different heresies. The first heresy is the heresy of works-based salvation. Big swing and a miss. Um, That you are saved by what you do or how good you are. That is false. That is a lie. You are not saved by your works. You are not able to save yourself. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. So I want to preach against, over here, boldly, I want to preach against any teaching that says you need to clean up before you come to him. I want to preach boldly against any teaching that says you need to stay clean in order for him to love you. I want to preach against any teaching that says you can save yourself. I want to preach against any teaching that says you need to assist him in saving yourself. Want to st- your salvation's in Christ's completed work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So I want to boldly preach against that. I also want to boldly preach against the pendulum swing the other way, the other heresy, the other tendency that I'll just call cheap grace or easy believism. And what that is is the go- any gospel that would says, just say the prayer and then do your thing. Just come, say the prayer, go. We'll see you there. It's like the, we'll see you later, right? Um, it's the, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if you change. It doesn't matter if you actually follow Jesus as a Jesus follower. Doesn't matter. Just say the prayer. Say the prayer and ignore everything else that Jesus said. Jesus didn't give you that op- option, brothers and sisters. 
God wants more than just for you to say a prayer. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He's called you to take up your cross and die to yourself, follow him, and the grace of God, listen to this, the grace of God, although it was given to you freely, was not cheap. It was costly. It was costly. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. So I want to preach against bold, boldly against both of these tendencies. I want to preach against any form of teaching that says, you know what, we're all okay. God loves you, and who am I to tell you what's right or wrong? Just pray the prayer. We'll see each other later in heaven. Another way to look at this is I want to preach boldly against the heresy that says your works get you to heaven and the heresy that says your works mean nothing. Instead, I want us to see the fullness of the gospel that says you are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and that Christ has called you to follow him. He's invited you to grow in him and he has commanded you to be on mission with him. The byproduct of your faith are works that glorify the God of your salvation. So as we come to this and we think this and we consider this, I, I want to get real practical here. Some of you might be hearing this and say, well, pastor, what on earth does that look like? What are these like mysterious works you're talking about? What does that look like? What does that mean? I can think of a lot of different things. Like, what does that mean? If, if works are the byproduct of our faith, then what works are you talking about? Better question is, what works is Scripture talking about? And first off, first off, I want to be very clear. The call above all, first and foremost, is to come to Jesus to repent of sin and to believe. This is crucial because here, belief in Christ precedes work for Christ. Don't flip them. Belief in Christ precedes any work for Christ. So if, you, if you're here, if you're listening to this, watching the video of this, and you have not responded in faith to Jesus, that's your, this is your call this morning. Come to Christ. The application this morning is to repent and to believe. That's it. We as elders, we would love to pray with you today, but belief in Christ precedes any work for Christ. For those who have responded in faith to Jesus, I, I want to point us quickly to two things. Two things, two quick things, and I want to look at Jesus' words that just, he sums this up for you. It's wonderful the way he's done this. He has summed this up for you. Um, I want to look at two, two passages. You don't need to turn with me here um, for time. But here in this text, this is Matthew 22. I want to read this to you. Here, Jesus is asked the straightforward question. I mean, as straightforward as you can get. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Which is the greatest? Tell us which one. Which work are you talking about, Jesus. And Jesus says, this is his reply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And then listen to this. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says, you know what, this wraps it up. This about sums it up. This about sums it up. Love God and love others. Love God, love others. So let me ask again. What kind of works are we called to as Christians? 
Simply, we are called to works that demonstrate our love for God and our love for others. So as you evaluate your life here in this moment, do you see fruit that demonstrates your love for God? Do you see fruit that demonstrates your love for others? Notice in our text, Paul says, but for those who are self-seeking, there's going to be wrath and fury. In other words, the Christian life is not the self-promoting, self-seeking, self-exalting, self-centered, selfish life. It's, it's the life modeled after Christ who humbled himself and poured himself out, who came not to be served but to serve, who emptied himself so that we might be filled. In other, in other words, to love God and to love others. As you evaluate your life, do you see fruit that demonstrates your love for God and your love for others? One more thing, though. I don't want to leave us here. There's one more thing that we need to see, and it's just a few chapters to the right. Um, This is right after Jesus' death and his resurrection, and as he's ascending to the Father, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go, therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here is what we see in the most simply stated way. Love God. Love others. Go and make disciples. Love God. Love others. Go make disciples who are going to do the same thing. We can make things so complicated, but this is our call. These are the works that you are called to do. Love God, love others, make disciples. Love God, love others, make disciples. And I'll just push on this further. Loving God is not optional for a follower of Jesus. Loving others, that one's not optional either for a follower of Jesus. And also, making disciples, that one is not optional for a follower of Christ. These are the things, these are the fruits that our lives must declare these things. So as you evaluate your life, do you see fruit that demonstrate your love for God, your love for others, and are you making disciples? About as simple as I can make it this morning. Do you see gospel fruit Before we pray, I want to bring us back to where we started at the beginning in our text. We've covered a lot of ground, important ground. But verse 6 started with this, this bombshell of a phrase, that he will render to each one according to his works. And church, I want to remind you that he, God, our righteous judge, will render to each one according to our are to his works, but ultimately the glory to the glory of God. This text was fulfilled perfectly, fully and completely through Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, who took your sin and gave you his righteousness. We began our time talking about justification and salvation. Scripture tells us the work of Christ has been credited to you by faith so that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. This morning, you can know that you are his based solely on work, his work. So as we turn our hearts just in response, um, I want to remind us of the truth of a hymn. And I love these words. 
says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Now, I want to read this final verse. This will preach. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. Listen, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. As we stand before the Lord, our confidence is in nothing, no work, no good we have done, but in Christ and Christ alone, and we hide ourselves. What a beautiful reminder. Church, would you, would you join me, and let's just go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are the righteous judge. You are good. You are perfect. You are holy. You are just. And we know that because of that, that no sin is going to be swept under the rug or no sin is going to be ignored. You would not be good if you ignored and turned a blind eye to sin. you, You would not be good, but you are good. You are perfect and you are just and you have made a way to both be just and justifier. Not ignoring our sin, but sending your son. Sending your son so that we can be forgiven, made new, so that we can be yours, so that we can stand before you on that day, knowing that we are yours because of Christ and what he has done. God, we thank you for those of us in the room who maybe have not responded to the gospel, who have never repented and believed in Christ for salvation. I pray that this morning is the day you have made that you call us to yourself and that we would respond in belief and repentance. And God, for those who have responded and who know you, Lord, I pray that you would, in this moment, just bring an assurance that we are yours, and at the same time, the discipline of a loving Father to reveal things in our life that we need to bring before you and repent. So, Lord, that's what we do. We stand on the assurance of Christ, and we ask that your Spirit would convict us for your glory and our good give you glory for that. We give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.